Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's guest, Addison Brazil. How are you, Addison? Hey there, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Now, you've got a, a book that you've written, and what I love about it, uh, the first year of Grief Club, is that that first year, I, I, I've talked about this myself, is like first few weeks, everyone's there, you're getting the support and then suddenly everyone goes back to their day-to-day life and you're kind of left to your own devices. So it was that was that your experience? And then th- through that lens, a little bit about the your book would be great. Yeah, absolutely. I think for sure it was also sort of the, the hesitancy for so long and then the catalyst for why I kind of showed up with this book the way I did because, you know, I definitely felt a sense of that and I consider myself someone – who was very well supported, you know, at these times, but that is sort of the natural course of things where people gather, you know, before, you know, the pandemic threatened it in any way, but people would gather and sort of be very supportive when something would immediately happen. And then we'd see this natural progression. And in the three times that I experienced intense grief uh, with my brother, my father, and my friend, um, I noticed by the time I was sort of coming to the reality of the grief, everyone was sort of gone. Uh, and so we talked about this a little bit off air, but, you know, I, I say this in the beginning of the book, whenever somebody would express that they've lost somebody, I would freeze because I, I really wouldn't know what to say. I didn't want to unload the reality of what was ahead. And I didn't want to sort of be the face of, you know, of, of what grief is and, and what that journey is. And so when I finally came to writing the book, I went, okay, if I was really going to be a friend to somebody who's just entered grief club, as I call it or the grief arena, you know, what would I really be comfortable with? And for me, it was, you know, speaking to them once a week, every week for a year and encouraging them to not just to learn to live sort of without somebody, but to learn who they are now. Uh, I think that was like a big thing that was never said to me. So this idea of staying curious and compassionate and experimenting while completely honoring everything you're going through, because that that trap is there to sort of fix things and move on. Cause that does, as you said, seem like that's what we do, right? You know, we gather, yeah. we, we kind of have this formal thing and then, and then everyone disperses, but unfortunately the grief and, and the getting to know yourself and the loss doesn't disperse at that moment. That's kind of when it starts. Mm, oh, I love that. Yeah. Because it, it does change you like fundamentally changes who you are because there's a, a part of you that's just like, well, it's the loss, right? They, they're gone. Mm-hmm. How have you learned to face that 
to face what has gone and and now who you are like I, we don't want to give too much away from the book but like you, you know your personal journey around how you've been able to process that yeah no of course and you know i i had a very natural instinct to go out in the world especially you know i lost my brother to an inoperable brain tumor after sort of four years of supporting him um and then with my father i found him after his suicide which was quite shocking and a totally different type of death so there i am at 24 years old and really all the men in my family and half of my family is is no longer with us and i'm and this is at a point too in your 20s where you're just trying to figure out how to be an adult period, you know, like all the yeah. things, all the rites of passages. So I had this natural idea, which I think most of us kind of have this like sort of go out and fix it. And I approached my mental health and my grief where I was sort of exploring the world and going off and just trying to do anything I could to fix it, button it up and sort of this idea of quote unquote, getting back to me. Um, and it wasn't until the funny thing is I actually did get to this point where I was celebrating claimed having do having done that. Uh, which I now laugh um, gently yeah. with myself that I truly believed, you know, I was good. And, and I even started to celebrate. And, and as my story goes on, on the, um, on the way home from, from celebrating that very thing one night, I was, I was in this accident that killed a dear friend of mine and then left me relearning to walk and with a brain injury and hospitalized and sort of a whole new type of, of journey and, and truly a whole new type of post-traumatic journey Um and I'm now 28 years old, navigating three intense grief processes as, you know, everything sort of surfaced with that, with that large event. And it kind of came to a point truly where I just realized that there was never, there was never going to be a fix, that there, there was nothing to fix and that it was going to be a daily relationship that I show up to every day. And I honor what truly is coming up in the moment or I'm stuck in the quicksand. And so it was really out of my own trying everything else first, trying to fix it, trying to escape it, trying to get out of it, that I finally hit the wall of there's nothing here to do but to honor what's truly coming up each and every day. And, and based on that honoring, make decisions, experiment within myself and sort of, you know, adjust as needed. Yeah. And, and if you break that down in really simple terms, it's often all you can do is adjust when needed do the best that mm -hmm. you can yeah it's almost too simple yet we try to do everything else first <laughs> yeah absolutely i'm partic particularly drawn to the thought of grief around your brother's diagnosis because if it's, mm. it's a four-year period where you're caring for him that initial diagnosis must have been a massive shock to the system. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting time because at, at that time, my brother was 13. And so I was about 15 turning 16 um, in 10th grade. And, and it was really polarizing. I, I have to admit, like I I sort of was had auditioned to go to this art school in the city and sort of was doing everything that I wanted to do. And meanwhile, my younger brother is navigating this this intense grief process within himself, but also just, you know, the, the rigors of radiation and chemo and, and all the things that come with that. And it's interesting, I was so young, and I think as a defense mechanism, there was sort of a checkout. And I also sort of, I kind of also, my brother was this sort of weird comeback kid. I mean, the amount of times they told us he had six months, and then we go four years, that yeah. 
in the end, we were at a point where we like didn't even believe it could happen, you know. And and I was I was very lucky in the sense that my younger brother showed up a lot like a father and an older brother in the way that he never really let anyone feel like he was sick when he was around them. So it was this very, very odd thing to be carried by someone who was dealing with so much. I don't know how much further I can talk about this guy without getting emotional, but um, yeah. but yeah, no, it, it was a very interesting process. And I think my brother's sort of cancer journey or inoperable brain tumor journey, it goes right with my own loss of innocence kind of, and, and right to the point where he passes where I'm at 18 years old. So it's it's really this, this abrupt end to childhood and, and um, this entry into this juxtaposition of him having lost the chance at 17 to, to go into adulthood and me having my whole adulthood ahead of me, but sort of with this, this big loss on my shoulders. It was, it was a very interesting time. I personally jumped into like a type Excel. I wanted to get back to school. I wanted to, you know, perform at the highest level. I started a nonprofit organization to help other brain tumor families. I mean, like I was sort of the, I can outservice this grief guy, um, yeah. which, you know, it's a, it's a vice in itself. You know, there, there's so many things we're going to try to do to distract or to find purpose or to give meaning to something. Um, and again, it was a beautiful way of avoiding what I would eventually be ready to honor later you know mm. but um you know in 2008 men's mental health wasn't a wasn't a topic across the bottom of screens there weren't really podcasts like this there wasn't you know so for me and my dad it was also something that you know at least experientially we were learning it was kind of tucked away and the best thing you could do was you know sort of owe it back to him to do to do better you know to experience more to achieve more so that that was it's really interesting looking back and i lovingly and gently kind of like laugh at you know, how I thought I could handle that then. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing what we what we think we know at that age and uh, and then soon realise later, two teenage children at the moment going through exactly that. So that's a, a fun journey in itself. Now, you said there was were pretty, you were pretty happy to go any direction. I know you said it's, it's quite emotional, but I'm, I'm curious, like, around that relationship like well i've got four siblings and there's different relationships with all of them and we're all close in our own different way but there's close and there's close right we, we did you spend much time with him or was more yeah. just yeah extremely close and i mean we were the brothers in the middle we had two girls on either side and and sort of the brothers in the middle and you know, it's such a delicate, odd thing because we were admittedly like, you know, my sister and I had sort of just passed that hoop where you go from being rival siblings to best friends, you know, because she's two years older than I. And so, you know, with yeah. his diagnosis, I think we all had this sense of sort of speeding up that, okay, enough of this, the silly sibling stuff, you know, this is real life. And we we were all really close and our house was sort of like that growing up. I mean, our door was never locked. It was the house where all the kids gathered, like, you know, all all the sort of like parties and gatherings kind of were at my house. I was the type of house where I'd come downstairs and my friends would already be there, like hanging out with my mom. And I'd be like, I didn't even know you were here. So we, we are, we were all very close and we sort of all interchanged. And then when he got sick, especially towards the end, when we just had sort of this never ending revolving door of visitors for him, you know, it, it just became so clear to me that we had something so special in our family and the way that we sort of you know, we hyper bonded really quick when that all happened. And 
it was this equal balance with him of always keeping his humor. He he wanted to be a stand-up comedian. He looked for the humor in every situation. And I'm talking like fresh brain surgery scar and he's finding the joke and you're like being like, why are you making me laugh right now? This is so inappropriate. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of family we really were. So we took yeah. our cues from him and, you know, it was, it was very difficult to be sort of the older brother and feel so young and, and sort of learning from him every step because he was the only one who was going through it. And, you know, he just, he really did want to continue normal life. And up until he literally couldn't walk or speak, I mean, he was still forcing me to drive him to school or to take him to work at the bakery. And even though he's dragging like his left side as a result of where the tumor pressed on his brain, you know, he was still doing all those things. So a lot of it at the end was just sort of sitting in awe and literally taking every cue from him, you know, and and, and what yeah. it was. Um, I think it was a struggle for me because that was my first year of school. So I saw him sort of at Christmas break and he, he was a miracle kid again. It, it seemed like the last treatment had worked and everything was great. We had a beautiful Christmas that year. And then I saw him for his 17th birthday in the spring and we were playing like beer pong and like, you know, like it was just so normal. And then I returned from school in late May and I, I just knew immediately we were in different, different and deep water. Uh, and mm. it, I think it was a lot harder for maybe my family to notice because they were with him every day. But for me, I came home and just went, oh, no, like it's it's really going to happen. And and the hospital sort of revealed that to us very soon after. And and so it's it's that weird thing with, you know, I get asked a lot about this as sort of pre grief. You know, does it exist? Did it, is it helpful to know when a death is coming? And, you know, in some ways, there's a level of preparation. But again, I have to say, like, at that age, too, I froze. I mean, I was instructed, even on his last days, say what you want to say. He can still hear you, like, all these things. And I just, I remember, like, staying silent, you know, and just being there and 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 not being willing to accept the end until there was no way not to, until that very, very last breath. There was no way any of us were kind of going there kind of thing. So it's really interesting because um, you'd think there'd be such a juxtaposition between, you know, these deaths that were sudden and unexpected, like my father and my friend and my brother. But it's weird how your mind will really never let you go there until you have to. You know, you, you, no one wants to go check an early to grief club. That's <laughs> not not something you're looking to do, you know. Yeah, it's probably a, a safety mechanism to to stop us from going into a space that's going not, not going to be helpful, particularly at a time when you're you are caring for him in what it's what I'm getting the sense of is in more ways than just the physical acts, right? It sounds like you like um you, you are naturally nurturing person, and, and like you might say, well, I, I can tell the difference because I hadn't been there, but I do get a sense that your your connection with him was probably deeper than that, and you would have got a sense mm -hmm. of that anyway. Now, now, given that's the case, and you're nodding as I say that, do you have you had conversations with him since his passing, where you just got a great sense that that there is a an open line of communication? Yeah, I've always had a special connection with him energetically. Um, unfortunately, because of the things that came later and sort of the post traumatic that came with it, I sort of shut down anything that wasn't right in front of me that other people would say they could see in here as well. Um, yeah. And that's something in later years and quite recently, I've, I've started to sort of try to rebuild those connections. But I will say that with my brother specifically, 
there was a very specific moment after his passing where I felt a release in the bond that we have and the energy, the way that we are connected. And I never, ever sort of worried about him or his energy after that moment. Um, and it's something that I guess within myself, I could, I fully understand and comprehend. But then when I try to put into words, it sounds like I was standing in a hallway with nothing, but it was very formative for me. And, and it did give me a lot of peace at that moment. And I, and as somebody who is, you know, adventurous and nomadic, and, you know, I always planned to live in Los Angeles. We grew up in Toronto. This idea of him being at a grave did not really work for me. So yes. there was sort of greater energetic feeling. And, you know, I still, when called, feel the need to talk to him, whether he's, you know, there or not, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a personal thing where I, where I go through these seasons of, of truly when it serves me and, and where I'm at spiritually and just in a connected way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I had one guest describe to me how it's, um, in, in those moments afterwards, people will be quite accepting and, and it's been normalized that you would have conversations with someone that's just passed. But then if you were to talk about that at any other time, like people don't necessarily get that and they might even like look at you as oh, I'm not quite sure about that. But it's, it is a natural from, from my experience and everyone I've spoken to, it's a natural, it's a natural reaction to want to be able to communicate still and, I've seen enough myself and, and experienced enough and heard enough stories of people getting confirmation for me to, to feel that that's just such a special moment. Yeah. I would say to, yeah, to anyone listening, it's for me, it's just about breathing in and saying what needs to be said without the worry or the attention on how it's being received or when or what, but, but yeah. allowing yourself to just express it and, and feeling the connection to, to the fact that you still want to communicate something, you know, it's a deeply yeah. personal thing. Yes, absolutely. Well said. Now you, you go through all of that and then you said you you found your dad after suicide. Was, was your dad already in a place where he was having some mental health challenges or, or did the, your brother's death really amplify that or a bit of both? You know, I think it really highlights and speaks to the time. This was, you know, 2008. Um, my dad was very successful in in finance, stock trader. So there was all those natural changes that were happening in the world, just of business as well for him. And um, I, I think that quite naturally, when my brother passed, we all focused attention to my mom, you know, this idea of how will the mother go on, you know, how, will, you know, and it, it was interesting because she was actually quite resilient and admittedly just with where we were even in just the understanding of mental health, especially men's mental health at that time, I just assumed my dad was, you know, good for anything. Like, you know, he, he wasn't, there was no way he was silently struggling and I wasn't aware. And so that is sort of what inspired a lot of my advocacy later in men's mental health. But, you know, the, the reason for that is at that time is it did seem quite invisible to me. And it was, again, at a time where I was figuring out what it meant for me to be a man in the world after my brother's loss. And everyone in the family, it's, you know, I always think of that thing, if, if, if everybody, you know, isn't paying attention to getting their own water out of the boat, then the boat is sinking. You know, if we start to sort of look at each other and it's, 
we'd rather everyone stays floating and treading than us trying to save each other and everyone, you know, getting exhausted and, and trying to support each other in that way. So it, it does become this delicate ecosystem. And and for my dad, to be honest, I, I wasn't aware he did have some some drastic life changes, like in the six months leading up to his passing, um, including the end of his second marriage. Um, and, and I knew, you know, between the two of us that he was he was struggling making sense and finding purpose again. But as far as having any sense of, you know, what seemed like a rough two weeks ending in suicide, that was probably the most shocking and surprising, you know, thing in my life. I, I mean, I, I did, I had spidey senses that I, I can now in retrospect with my understanding and my inheritance of mental health education make sense of, but at that time it was just that same connection and feeling I'm talking about when I still feel my brother, I, I felt that in connection to my father, that something was truly wrong. And I was very caught in the midst of respecting his privacy and what he was saying as a man and what I should act on, you know, out of intuition. Um, and, and so, yeah, if nothing else, I definitely inherited sort of this mental health education from that moment. And, and obviously the world has come so far in the last 10 years. Again, he wouldn't have had a podcast like this to listen to. He, you know, there, yeah. November wasn't in existence. There was no, it's okay to not be okay back then. It was, you know, the Portuguese Catholic provider of family and that's your worth. You know, that was his wiring. That was his mindset. So, um, I, again, in retrospect, I can make sense of all of it. In that moment, I was just truly a boy who, you know, lost his, his dad in a, in a terrible, terrible and unexpected and surprising way. Um, mm. There's a few things I'd love to unpack there. And it's interesting that you you bring this up because it's something that I observed recently. I actually I did an individual podcast episode on it just last week. The guilt of when when someone leaves us too soon of of all of those different thoughts of could I have done something different, could I have done something to stop it? What what you noticed in in retrospect, but would never have noticed at the time, is that oh yeah, there kind of were some signs that I could have looked out for, and even though logically we might say, I didn't I didn't know like mm-hmm. there's still part of that uh, underlying feeling like I guilt shame, whatever it is, that I should have done things differently. Mm-hmm. Have you had to process any of that as you then did look back and, and, and notice what you noticed? Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, a weird advocate for a healthy amount of human guilt with any death or any process. You know, so many people at the time who were just truly trying to be helpful sort of would say, you know, well, you shouldn't feel guilty for anything or you shouldn't, you know, and I've spoken about this before, but there's just certain elements of, you know, for instance, my father who in my 30, or I always do that. I was only 23 at the time. Now, now it would be 30 years. But, you know, in that 23 years, I, I truly don't believe I ever saw my dad eat a frozen dinner. Like, I, I just don't think. And the day after his death, I found one in the garbage. And it's just something that's always stayed with me. And it's something that I thought I had to, again, fix or get rid of because I shouldn't feel guilty. But that's also just this beautiful example of like who I am as a human and and my compassion and my empathy, just who I'm who I am and who my parents brought me up to be. I'll just never truly be comfortable with that frozen dinner. And I'm cool with that now. 
Like, I, I don't need to let go of that. That's something that goes, yeah, that's my dad. And I would have liked to cook for him that night. And it's the perfect amount of guilt for me, you know? So, and then there's other things where, of course, around something like a suicide or an accident where there's this limiting belief that you could have controlled time somehow. You could have, you know, did a Benjamin Button thing and, and switched things around if you had just done this. And I call it the Benjamin Button thinking because in the movie, he kind of goes through and says, if you had just done this, if you had just done this, like all these things for this event to not occur. And you realize just how many things you would have had to do differently for something to shift. Um, yeah. But if, when I take myself out of all of that, I have to say that, and this is years of self-work and deep work, but I am able to look at it in a world where I can change nothing, which is the only world I you know, truly believe exists. I couldn't have, have shifted something that, that was going to happen like that. Um, in a weird way, it has become sort of an honor that you know, somebody was going to be there to usher these people out, uh, these people who I love dearly. Um, you know, I, I'm honored that, that I got to be there and, and it sort of helps with the guilt that I know that I was sort of the last person to hug my dad. I was sort of the last person to cater to my friend's sense of humor and take her to her favorite band that was playing at that concert that night. And I, I get to live in this pure awareness that their last sort of touches with humanity, I get to be, you know, confident that, that it was within love. You know, and, and that's for me starts to really overshadow the guilt when I'm able to do that. But I, I think there's a healthy amount of guilt and I think it's a process. And even when you brought up guilt, I started to laugh for anybody who can see the visual. And I'm not laughing at guilt. I'm laughing because it's one of those things where you go, oh, yeah, you're going to do that. You're going to. Yeah, you're going to do that for a long time. You know, and that yeah. that natural process of, you know, in a way it's, you know, if you look at Mary Frances O'Connell's work and the, the neurobiology of grief, you know, it, it's a very smart avoidance tactic to focus on the guilt rather than the loss and the finality of the loss. It's actually protecting you for a little while. So, you know, if the guilt's showing up naturally, you know, being curious and compassionate within it is actually a very healthy thing for you to do because you're obviously not ready to focus solely on something more final or something, you know, like that. So, um, Again, in retrospect, very easy to sit in this chair now and sort of Monday Monday morning quarterback my grief processes. But in the moment, of course, I was yeah. completely lost and overwhelmed when grief and guilt collided for the first time, you know, of course. Yeah. And what, what I love is that you are sharing it from that perspective of this is what it was like at the time. And it's important for, for everyone who's gone through any sort of loss to realize that there is stages and there's no right or wrong on how long you should sit in any of them. They're there to serve a purpose. And mm. when you're ready, you'll process it. I guess the thing that comes to mind for me is, is it's, um, it's a choice as well. And ultimately we choose to stay at a point until we're ready to move on. And, and that's not mm. anyone else's responsibility, but ours. And like, like you were saying, it's like, taking responsibility for the part that I can bring to this world now rather than looking back at what I could have done. Nothing's going to change that. Yeah. Nothing would have changed that. Something's just meant to happen and, and it's then moving forward with it. So actually I'll, I'll come back to that. I wanted to just talk about one more thing, if you don't mind, It's and it's around what you said around your dad. It's like because I know there's going to be a lot of dads listening to this who may have experienced similar things. His worth, you said, was attached to this this being the provider, and 
the the financial crisis at the time. He's working in that area, so that he's got a loss, a massive loss there of being the provider. Then he's got a breakdown of a marriage, and he's got all this other stuff. Plus, he's got all the. I'm sure he still had elements of grief uh, from losing a child, having spoken to people who've lost children. It's like that that that, that feeling like oh, you should never have to. The, the phrase that I heard from one of them: "You should never have to bury a child." Mm-hmm. And so he's got all these different things going on that are that are creating this impact, and and as you said, suffering in silence. Mm-hmm. So I can see now. What, yeah, go on. You go. No, no, I'm just um, collecting my thoughts. I, I, you know, again, what what's sort of important to look at is that, you know now I'm able to look back you know, I'm 33 years old now. And I realized, A, just how young my parents were. I had very, very young parents. And I realized just the way my dad's upbringing into what he valued and, and you know, sort of how he built his life all attributed to, to the moments and how his mental health formed around his own life. You know, um, it it is this beautiful thing, if nothing else, that I get to look at it like that now. And if I could speak to my dad now, I would you know, be doing everything to help him to understand that his value to us was never, you know, financial or, and not even that he wasn't able to do that anymore, but just, we were at an age where we, where we were out of the house, you know, and my brother was the youngest of his three children. And my sister and I were already adults, you know, I was, you know, we were both out in the world working. So I think, you know, I think there is sort of a, a lack of education, especially at the time there with the empty nesting and just sort of the shifts and, and you know this is a man who from his perspective was doing everything he could his whole life to provide and to give and receive love and sort of ends up in this moment where nothing makes sense um and none of it made sense to me it was 10 years ago this july you know that 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 happened and as i get older i go okay so take away my coaching take away my therapy take away all the things i inherited as a result of that moment that I needed to prioritize as a man in this world and put me in the in that moment where where the world I knew and the world I always thought I would live in just is unrecognizable you know a uh, second divorce losing a child the the complete shift of technology and finance and you know everything you know he came up on it's just a totally different world and so there's just there's I hope if anyone's listening to this there's just so much compassion and empathy to apply to that beyond this this question some people get stuck on and i did too admittedly when i was younger around you know why would he do that you know and and that's something that's years of research and work to go when you're really looking at suicide you know our our bodies and our brains are not designed to allow death especially self-inflicted to happen you know i i jokingly say to my friends you know go Try to drown yourself in that pool. Your body will not let you. Your mind will not let you, you know, and, and yeah. it's the same brain. So there's obviously at some point a true disconnect there, you know, where where everything goes quiet. And, and I can speak to this myself, the closest I've ever come to suicide after the accident when I was just in such an immense, immense pain. All that thinking I thought my father was doing, that was not present. There was just sort of a quietness and one logical way 
to end the overwhelming amount of pain that I was feeling. And I, and, and sort of, it, it kept closing in like a fog around me. And, you know, a few days out, I was still thinking this cannot happen to the rest of my family. Like we have to do everything we can. You know, I gave up my independence. I, I put myself in my mother's care. All my doctors were aware that this was something that was a true concern for me because of, because I knew what it had done to my own life to find my father in that way. But as it got closer to that moment, which luckily was disrupted and I was supported and had resources at the time, you know, none of that was there. It was just a very logical, you know, this is the way that, that we can end that alarm that's constantly going off in your body right now. And, and it's so weird that my own almost suicidal moment is what's given me the most amount of peace around my father's passing um, and, and such understanding there. And, and I, I don't really know what happened. I've been carried through all of this, and I mention this in the book and whenever I speak, there's a certain element of magic through these big three things of what's carried me through and, and a true community of support. And I truly just remember saying at the time, like, if you get me through this, I'll go back for the others. Because I, I knew, some, I felt like as if something was happening to me the same way a cancer or, or you know, that was un, uncontrollable. It's, it was in no way that. So it's weird that that experience actually gave me the most understanding, compassion, empathy, and peace around around the way that I lost my father. You know, my dad didn't didn't kill himself. He didn't commit suicide. He died by suicide. That and that's something I always make sure. And I'm speaking. I make that distinction because I think it just helps us all truly further along in the mental health journey to to look at it that way. Yeah. Oh, mate. So much depth to that. Thank you. The, the, I'm glad the first thing that you started with. I'm glad you said because again, it's important for parents to remember that the thing that they may think is what they need to be for their children is not actually what their children are wanting from them or already getting from them. Mm -hmm. And it's that pressure that we put on ourselves. And if you're a parent listening, the pressure that you put on yourself around what you think it is, it's that the two words you mentioned before, being curious and experimenting, mm -hmm. finding what works, finding what doesn't, and also shifting from realizing that it's you're already being the provider, the protector, or whatever else that you may be thinking you're not, to then using that curiosity and experimenting and asking questions and being open to different possibilities to allow yourself to feel like you are the things mm -hmm. that you are already providing. So instead of having to go through what you went through, which was your own moment to get that full understanding, being able to come back to understanding through your own work on yourself rather than having to go down into a, into a deeper hole yourself. Does yeah, that, and does that there, yeah. And I think that I would also just say that when it comes to parents or parental grief, you know, I know that I thought sort of without ever realizing it, that like my dad was just my dad and sort of in my world, in my perspective, that's just what his job was and, and what his role was in the world. And, and there's this, this beautiful thing about coming to this place where you realize your parents are human beings and everything that you've gone through to become who you are, that they had a similar journey. They're fully flawed, fully feeling human beings that aren't just your parent and that that's just such a that you know i don't really ever go into what would i tell my younger self 
but that's one thing I might have just, you know, taken myself to the side. And, you know, these are fully feeling, fully flawed human beings who had dreams and who prioritized having a family very young, you know, to give you everything. But like th- that perspective just was not there, you know. And I, and I, I feel like I, you know, I, w- I expressed gratitude. I was, you know, we were extremely loving family in all those ways. It wasn't any sort of thing like that. It was just like that truly wasn't my worldview. You know, he was just my dad and dads were dads. And then and then you become a man and you're like, oh, no, these are these are real people who, you know, like, you know, you never think of your parents as having like exes or like, you know, high school drama or like struggling in college. Like their their job was to like keep you alive and make sure you went to school. Like it's this weird thing. And unfortunately, with my dad, I, I that's something that those are conversations I didn't get to have with him. Because that learning comes much later when, you know, you enter sort of your own manhood and realize those things, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I can definitely relate to that that idea of wanting to have these conversations with people that are no longer with us. Um, and we can come back to that because I wanted to, to get to what you talked about there. So your own suicidal moment, but actually the catalyst for that. And so you and the fast forward to the accident, which I can't remember if you said it when we were on air or not, but it was kind of like you were saying like that going through that and then having to go through your own uh, mm. suicidal moments was actually probably the bigger, biggest moment all of all of them. So tell us a little bit about how that unfolded without necessarily going into the nitty gritty, but just what that, what that whole experience was like and, and how, how that left you feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I kind of dipped into sort of how it, it helped me to understand my father more. Um, you, you know, it, it's quite similar to what, you know, it's sort of in the inverse of what I'm saying. I assume about my father was, was right where I was at. So I guess that's where that learning comes from. But I was just in this place where suddenly my own life and my own circumstances were, were just sort of completely unbelievable to me. And I, I really have such an empathy and just love for anyone who struggles with any sort of chronic pain. I, I always used my body throughout, you know, my grief and my mental health journey in my 20s. I mean, I danced at the highest level, you know, on scholarship at school. Like, I, you know, just I always returned to that athleticism when I was struggling the most, when there were no words for something. And then after the accident, I, I was in the first place where, I, you know, I relearned to walk like I, you know bedridden to wheelchair to walker to cane and then I was in pain all the time and it sort of just became this thing where my life was not only something I no longer understood but it it sort of felt like there was this fire alarm constantly going on in my head in my mind and in my soul really of just this constant pain signal and it was a lot more logical than one would think I just started you know thinking well there is there is one way. And if anyone knows about that way, quite intimately, it's you. And, and I I think at the time, this is pre a lot of coaching and a lot of mindset work and a lot of me of my meetings with my mentor, um, where I was, you know, if, if your if your parent passed of Alzheimer's, I always say every time you'd forget something, you'd feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know, you're just Mm -hmm. not sure. And so losing a father quite young to suicide that I, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, I, I am my father's son. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I, I had those moments as I was gaining my mental health education where, you know, 
is this how he felt? You know, how close am I? Like, what what is this? You know, and also I had a lot of people looking in going, yeah, you know what? You know, after the brother, the father, and now the accident and the loss of a friend, like, this is too much. Like, I don't know how you're doing it. Like, the things I was being told were like, this is sort of impossible. So what, you know, it, okay, wow. it, it was a very difficult time. And um, for the longest time, I mean, it came to a point where at one point I actually had a, a conversation with a therapist where I just said, you know, I wonder if you could talk to my mother and my sisters and just explain to them that, you know, sort of like a quality of life, you know, end of treatment type conversation. And I know that intimately because I've had that conversation with my brother where, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm going to do my best. But, you know, and I, I used a sports metaphor. I said, we're in game seven and I'm down. And I just think somebody that's spent this time with me intimately on this mental health journey needs to speak to them because I'm not sure what's going to happen here. I'm doing everything I can, but I just don't feel like I'm winning this thing. And I am constantly saying that at the time, I don't think I'm going to win this thing, you know, and I, and it hurt me so much to say that, but it was also sort of this weird duty to admit that that's how I was feeling. Um, But um, yeah, it was a, a very weird combination of asking for help, uh, telling the truth when it seemed like it was insane to actually admit that informing both like my peers and my professional network within my, you know, my, my, um, mental health journey. And then, you know, the biggest kudos goes to my mother, who was someone that loved me unconditionally, took me in after 30 years of co-parenting was happy for me to finally admit that I was like, you know, equivalent to a baby in diapers going, I don't know how to do this thing anymore. Um, and she, she kept me safe and supported me with a level of grace and integrity that if I can ever reach in my life, (laughs) uh, I will, I will have done the thing. Um, you know, but, um, that, that's again, that, that magic there where, you know, this idea of returning home and and being truthful and honest and, and really admitting where you were at and sort of what I thought was the end was actually became sort of this ultimate surrender that opened up to a, to a back end for me of, 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 tr- I thought if I ever truly accepted my circumstances, that would be the end. And, you know, it was one of those things, luckily for me, because of that mental health education I inherited, it, it was a beginning. Um, but, you know, I, when we toy with my memoir, you know, I always say that the third Brazil boy did die. He just woke up 10 minutes later, you know, everything I believed about the world, and how it would work and how I would function and how it would all happen had to die at that moment. There was no, there was no room for that version of me anymore. And, and that's mm-hmm. where it goes, the rewiring and the mindset work and sort of a, a true rebirth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, powerful. I, what I know of grief is that it, it forces you to grow up, for want of a better term, beyond your years. So so you've been thrust into this almost adult world from caring for your brother to him, his passing, and then your dad's passing to you sort of suddenly you're the you're the man of the family. It's it's suddenly you're having to cope with things that most people don't have to, that really you shouldn't have to. And then you try and push yourself like you described till ultimately you have to come to that point of putting your hand up and saying, well actually no it's I'm not coping with this and I do need help. And to me, the the resistance from so many men is that's a sign of weakness. But what mm-hmm. I know is it's the ultimate show of strength to say that 
I'm going to allow myself to be supported the same way that I support everyone else, and that's going to make me even stronger. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, around that yeah, accelerated you know, growing up. Yeah, when you have a, a story like mine, I feel like you you have people approaching you with a lot of hows and a lot of whys. Um, and I do think it, it, it seems oversimplified, but, you know, responding, I asked, I was willing to ask for help was a very big part of it. But I also took responsibility in figuring out what true support looked like for me, you know, and helped the people around me to actually provide it. Um, it wasn't sort of a just I need help, you know, like it, it was there, there was that inner work and that responsibility we all have to remain response able, you know, as you break down the world and say like in being able to say this is what support would look like for me in this moment. Um, and that's for whatever reason, so easy to give, but so hard to ask for, even in moments of desperation. And, and again, that's where this idea of, you know, that's where true grace and integrity for me lies is, is, is in a moment where you can truly ask for what you need. Um, and, and trust me, as soon as I was out of the danger zone, I try to close that right back up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as far as growing up quickly, again, I don't know. I grew up in this beautiful family where the parents were younger than the other parents and the kids were all so close. I I do feel like in a weird way, though, we all still got to grow up and we did it together. And, you know, some sort of like snakes and ladders, you know. Yes, sometimes at 16 years old, I was doing things that I now am like, I'm not that mature now at 33, you know, (laughs) where I was like, you know, trying to help with my brother and my sister or, or whatever it was in the household or whatever. But then also I've we've all sort of had this I got your back moment where everyone got to sort of go back and reclaim that a little bit. And, and um, I'm certainly glad. I think if I'd sit on the track, I was I you know, run a nonprofit, I would have been married with 2.5 kids and, you know, provide, I was, I was on my dad's track after my brother, you know, and I'm so glad that I've taken the time, especially now that the book's been written to kind of go back and be like, check in with my inner child and go, okay, I know you missed a lot, like, what can we do, you know, and, and what's coming up for me a lot in the last six months, which nobody on earth understands, because they're like, what are you doing? Um, and I'm like, focusing on, on a lot of love and a lot of laughter, and a lot of connection. And, and that's kind of wild for all my friends who are getting married and having babies that I'm, I'm sort of, I'm having my, you know, gap year do Europe at 33, you know, um, and I feel confident doing that because the achievement list is there for me and it will be there when I get back, you know, um, still enough of an A type that I made sure I published a book before I ran away, but like, you know, like it's, you, you know, it's, it's, it's there for me. And, um, I don't know, again, I, I feel like I got through this thing, you know, with just the right amount of magic. So there, I, I don't, I don't really ever have a moment where I sit around and go, you know, um, I, I feel sorry for myself. I, I, it's hard to do when you're that, when you're the third Brazil boy to, you know, to go, damn, you're the one who gets to do whatever you want, you know, um, and operate in this world with, you know, just the right amount of support and just the right amount of magic and just the right amount of privilege to be perfectly honest, you know, and I acknowledge all of that and, and take my steps forward in that way. So yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting thing. And again, to go back to the you know the point of the book and, and the the beginning of the conversation, that's a daily relationship. 
you know, how I feel about losing my childhood changes on a Monday to a Thursday. And I honor it very differently on the Monday to the Thursday, you know, what we bring into that day and kind of breaks I take and what if I seek out a comedy show versus, you know, doing extra late hours of work, you know, it's just sort of, it's this, this beautiful broken balancing act of, of honoring what's truly coming up in the moment, not this theoretical idea of what a life looks like, you know? Mm. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. You mentioned there around your friends. I, I imagine some of them would be a little bit envious that you're going out and doing a whole lot of that sort of thing. And what, what it drew me to was... I don't think with my story, envy is, is a word that comes up. I don't think. I, I, I don't know. Well, not in the well I mean, I mean of, of the fact that you're going and doing the traveling and all that sort of stuff now when they're... Uh, when if they've got small children, then they're feeling quite trapped, I imagine, because <laughs> it can have that sort of impact. But what I was going to say yeah. is that has there been elements for you on the flip side of that, similar to what you said, well, this is what my life is, where, where I don't know if envy is the right word, but looking at your life and going, well, wouldn't it have been great just to have, un, like, inverted you know, commas, normal it life? Would if I if I didn't have a you know a beautiful master coach and mentor that. Jennifer Merrifield, shout out, um, that taught me very early in the game and through my own experiential learning that, you know, just comparison, and it's one of the we, the experiments in the book, like it just truly didn't serve me or my grief at any point. You know, it's just, it's sort of like a, a trap to even go there. And I'm, that is one of the first things that I, I worked so hard to rewire was that muscle to go, oh, look over there, you know, because with, with what I went through, it was just, I was never going to win that game. Um, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't even fun to play the game. It'd be one thing. I'm, I'm not a sore loser, but like, it was, the game's not even fun to begin with. Why even get in? Like, why even play? You know, why sign up for the league? So yeah. I, I do, I do, after a lot of work, you know, can confidently say that I, I generally don't try to compare. And I, it is this weird thing where I constantly am saying to people, I still don't think the weird thing about me at this moment is, the three deaths or the grief processes it's more the amount of like awe hope laughter connection that i'm still able to experience after having them because i know in those moments quite intimately that everything in my life was teaching me to shut down and to disconnect so i couldn't lose anymore and i don't know how or what the genetic makeup or magic was that allowed me to stay connected but you know it, it leads to a lot of gratitude for me for sure um and yeah again on uh, this is me on uh, what day is it thursday you know on monday i was probably pretty pissed that my best friend has two kids in orange county and like you know just these what i used to call normal people problems like you know yeah, i'm yeah. just getting to that it's it's very weird i'm i'm very much like a child right now which i keep bringing up i'm 33 and it's the first time that everything i do is in the shadow of trying to be resilient, of trying to survive something I thought I would never have to. These are my first steps. These are my first words. I, I've never operated in a world where it wasn't out of survival as an adult. Uh, so it's it's to be continued. It's it's the it's the memoir, you know. And that's why I, I stopped from the process of the memoir going out. I truly wasn't comfortable with it ending at you know a year ago. I, I think there's a there's a huge love story missing there with myself and the world you know um so it, it's a very interesting and precarious time 
and uh, challenging a lot of limiting beliefs around every time things calm, something bad happens right now. It's, it's that's my adventure right now is going like, no, this is sort of what it's like when you're not, you know, in the grasp of grief, you know? Uh, so it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Awesome. You mentioned there, like, oh, you've, you've, you're finding the humor and things. And, and I noticed that quote when I was looking at your bio earlier, I was immediately drawn to what you said about your brother as he was going through all of his challenges. He's still bringing that that wonderful humor, and I, and I kind of it kind of feels like it's there's a beautiful synergy there around how that you've made that such a a big part of your forward path, and also helping others to do the same. So, mm-hmm. have have you drawn that that uh, bridge between? how you're processing it now and how he did. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of, when the book came out, I kind of had a team huddle and it was like, I don't think I want to do this grief thing. You know, I sat in it for 13 years. I don't want to sit around talking about death. Like I, I, like I said, I, you know, my inner child is sitting in the room with me and he's got demands uh, and it has nothing to do with talking about death or helping other people through death. Um, But I came to this place where I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this for me, you know, it's got to be this, this sort of self mantra of equal parts, honor the journey and find the funny because that's who I truly am. And if I can't show up in the space and do that the way I have in my, my own life and the way my family always has, then I, then I won't. And it's, it's been welcomed that I, I let that back in. It doesn't have to be this a type advocacy, sad story thing. Like it can really be there. And one thing I, I really love about my family is that humor was was always this like magical bonding force between all of us, you know, parents, kids, you know, that it was it truly was so special to all of us and and understanding each other's sense of humor to really, you know, help each other and lift each other up in that way. And the fact that we that we refused, we we really refused, I mean, like we rebelled against giving that up as a tool um, to survive our losses is just so cool to me because I mean, the humor got, you know, really fine tuned and smart. And some people call that gallows humor. But for us, it was just these nods that we weren't alone and we weren't isolated. I mean, that joke is just too specific not to be funny. And I know by making it that my sister and I know exactly where we are in the world and what we're going through. But we get to do it through this cool, you know, element of humor. And, you know, a lot of my jokes and, you know, my friends will tell you, a lot of them for a long time were like, you can't say that was the immediate response. Well, they laughed, you know, and it was like, yeah, I can. And if I can't say it, then who can? You know, this is truly, you know, my experience. And, you know, we are sort of this, you know, this, I see like HBO comedy kind of show where we were laughing in funeral homes and limos and on deathbeds. And that's just always the way we, we dealt with it. It was, you know, like I say, I can't build a toolkit for anybody for grief. I can just guide you in experiments that will allow you to find the tools that will work for you. Humor is my number one tool. That is the reason I am here today. It's also the reason I was able to understand that I was suicidal because nothing was funny for the first time in my whole life. It's It's been such a tuning fork for me my whole life that I will never give up that tool just because it's not in someone else's kit. 
you know, so it's it's that thing of what does your hammer look like? What does your screwdriver look like? I, I just want you to be able to do what you're trying to do in the world. It doesn't have to be my list of 10 things that will help you, you know, um, if there's, you know, I say in the book, there's no retreat, there's no quick fix, there's no funnel online that that gets rid of your grief. So you know, save your money and, and start start truly experimenting and spending time with yourself in it, because it's your tools will come from you, you know, ultimately. Yeah, fantastic. That quote, I'm going to use that one. I'll never give up that tool because it's not in someone else's kit. It's it's mm. that that feeling that you have to be a certain way so you don't upset someone. Like I can't laugh here because someone else might be upset. And it's like, no, just be true to you. Let them manage their own stuff. And you've talked about that the whole way through, right? Come back to responsibility. Come back to... I loved how you break that down, responsible. Like you can only dictate or control what you do. So to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can I just come back to, to that time from the accident? Because if it's okay, mm-hmm. that, that, so you, do you, are you um, conscious after the accident or how bad an accident are we talking or did you suddenly wake up in hospital and then you're like trying to piece it all together or yeah it's um you know and this is something too where if i check in with myself right now and like where i'm at sort of in the day the level of exhaustion and just my own awareness around my post-traumatic i'm not going to go too much into any of the details of that but it, it was fatal um and um you know it i was knocked unconscious so there are elements and my brain is still to this day protecting me in ways in terms of what I do and don't remember. Um, but I certainly remember sort of the, the time that followed, you know, um, the, the path forward from that. Um, it's also, it's sort of, you know, equated to sort of wearing tr- glasses when you're dealing with trauma, you know, when, when they're on, they're on, but I, I'm not wearing those glasses anymore. So it's this, this odd thing of the memories are there you know, if, if I was to get triggered, I remember a lot more, you know, and and viscerally and, you know, with that, whereas when I'm in a pretty healthy place, it is sort of sometimes, and I'm sure it seemed like this for listeners at the time that I'm sort of speaking about somebody else sometimes the way it's sort of just a bit disconnected. And again, that's just a beautiful thing the brain does so that, you know, I can share a story without, you know, blubbering through it. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was it was quite horrific, um, and um, and it just, I mean, quite frankly, for two years, my my full time job was recovery, um, mm. and well, well, also, you know, having this new grief process come in to one of the most lovely people that I've ever had the honor of knowing. Um, so it was, um, yeah, just the most the most difficult time in my life, and again, it was another point where I truly was sort of a baby. I, I feel like in my own head, I'm a broken record, but I always say when I woke up the next morning, it was like you were trying to run Mac on windows. It just didn't work anymore. Nothing yeah. made sense to me. And, um, and my mom flew in and I remember saying to her, like, you know, why though? Like, why is, why is this happening? Cause the, the, it seemed like we started together and we were all grieving the central loss. And then you know, with my father, it was like, why was I the only one there? And then in this situation, as far as my family and my my other close friends were concerned, 
the grief of it was all sort of my experience. This was this is specific to me. Um, yeah. You know, and and my mom's only response could be that, you know, I, I guess because you're strong enough, you know, to be there for these things. And at that moment, I just remember looking at her with tears in my eyes and like, I don't want to be that. Like, I, I have no interest in in that. You know, that's that yeah. sounds like something you say in a movie, not in the real true journey of your own life, you know. Um, and yeah, I, I that that entire that entire journey was just touch and go of of what I could manage within a moment and how much pain I could handle and and how much learning I could take in a day. And this is at a time where because of the brain injury as well, I mean I I spending half my time with my eyes covered and my ears plugged, you know. So it was just um it was like sort of womb like in memory as well because it just, you know, I just I just remember I was just so focused on being able to walk and then, you know, and then everybody was rolling their eyes when I started talking about running, which I now do. Um, But, you know, like it was like, you know, it was just it was so I mean, what a horrible way to say it, but one foot in front of the other, you know, for so long. And Mm -hmm. again, it's one of those things like the other two things we talked about. The theme here is when I was able to sit back last fall to write the book. In retrospect, you know, I understand that that so many of the resilience takeaways and tools that I built, I could kind of go, well, what was that experiment? And then, like, how would I set someone else up to experiment with that without having to go through what I went through? Um, again, that all in retrospect, in the present moment, it was just the most difficult and unbelievably challenging time of my life. Yeah, and, and I don't know how you look at this but it's it's almost like a, a it feels like a predetermined journey that you would have the strength for those things and and I don't know if you've read the book um, the medical medium where he talks about this gift that he had and and it just presented everywhere and then there was a moment there where he was drowned oh he's trying to save his dog who was drowning and then he went to save his dog and then he's drowning and he had that similar conversation to what you described like saying to God, if you get me out of this, I, I promise I'll, you said, I'll take them, take them with me or whatever it was you said. And he was like, oh, I'll I promise I'll, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll go back to them. Yeah. He said, I'll, I'll honor this gift that you've given me and the miraculous moment of being saved. And at, at that time when I was reading that, I was going through that same thing. Like I, I, I feel other people's stuff deeply to the point where I'll get a sensation in my body and go, oh, where's that come from? And then I'll look at my phone and someone's just messaged me. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't fully understand the magic of how that works, but at that time when I read that, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm actually sick of this. It's so exhausting. I'm so over it. And that just sort of smacked me in the face of like, yeah, well, there's a reason. And and we all, everyone, every single person has something like this and and. You don't have to be have gone through what Addison went through to find it, but that message that that your mum gave you may not have been what you needed to hear at the time, but then also maybe it was because it's what I see now is the journey you've gone on is is, is a self realization of just how incredibly strong you are and how you can pass it on to other people. And I would just want to declare it here and now for the universe and everybody listening that that book's been written and that pattern is there. It's going to be just real relaxed now. 
<laughs> I'm like, my friends are like, maybe if you stop getting up, they'll stop punching you down. <laughs> it's like one of those things that you punch and it comes back up and it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, it's, it's a, you're catching me at like a formative moment in that sense of, of believing that I, I'm sort of on two feet again. Um, and it's, it's very interesting. And, and part of that is the book existing and, and I don't, there was a whole new level of acceptance that happened when I could suddenly be in rooms with people that I wasn't in. And how would I have a grief book if it wasn't all true? And, you know, there was all these elements of acceptance when the book came out that I've been sorting through over the last six months, while also somehow trying to eloquently sound like I know what I'm talking about when I'm once again in the deep end, you know, figuring out what this whole thing is. Um, You know, so it's, it's, it's been really interesting and I'm sort of, yeah, on the precipice of that. And, you know, that's one thing I always say to people too, is it's, I did want to create something that I was comfortable with you giving to someone the first day they lose someone. But this first year, it can also be the first year you choose to honor your grief, like years later, you know, the first, first year you try to commit to doing it with compassion and kindness, you know, first you commit to allowing a friend in, you know, so it, for me, I'm, I'm constantly on a first year and I'm going back to all these experiments every week and it, it does become funny. You know, you are like, Oh yeah. Cause we know comparing helps. Let's just keep going down this road. You know, like, so it's like, it's like, you know, and the tests come, you know, people genuinely are curious and they want to know like how you look at life when you've experienced death in an intimate way. And those are all little tests for how you truly want to show up in the world, you know? And, um, it's, it's just constant experimenting. And I think the biggest takeaway that I can ever give people is, is that, that, that idea that there is no fix and like, you will never know. There is no way to know. And the sooner you let go of that, the sooner you step into this freedom of just what's actually happening, you know, and how resilient you are within a moment. Um, there's no preparing for what you don't know, although we try ruthlessly forever you know and I just I say it with a smile and laughing and tomorrow I might say the very same thing in tears because it's just too real in the moment you know um there's I have no way of knowing how how or when my grief will show up and in what way I just know that I've long committed to honoring it and sometimes that means disappointing people that means canceling that means making opportunities to make amends later you know whatever it is to truly show up to it in the moment Mm, love that and and what I know about laughter is that the, the the healing element of it is just so powerful. The um, what you described there with the, the the first year can be the first year of all the different parts of grief, and I think anyone who's been through through that loss, it can just come back out of nowhere. The the one that sticks in my head is is not on a particular date or anniversary, but a, around about eleven years after, not not maybe could have been 11 and a half years. I'm, I'm walking just up the road here, back up to my house, and then suddenly just get this moment of something around my dad and just and I just started crying out of nowhere. And I get to the front door and everyone's like, oh, you're right, are you right? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm fine, but I just just had a moment. And that's like almost like you go, your book is a reference book. Come back to, okay, well, now it's the first year of whatever this was. Be curious have a think about mm-hmm. it was but it's what it was and and continue peeling back the layers so that 
that part of it, how you describe that, that made me think, okay, I've got to get a copy of this book because it, because it, <laughs> you know, and, and this might be the worst thing to say as an author, but I do say it because I don't care. Um, even if you get it, just so it's, I don't want it to be that thing that you meant to do in this wellness thing that's now bothering you. But if you do get it and you don't even open it, it's just every time you see it, just, just to remember that this isn't, there's nothing to fix. You know, yeah. there's, yeah. just honor what's coming up, including not wanting to open my book, like, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. But even if it can just be like in your gym bag or in your kitchen or on your nightstand table and you never even open it, like, you know, just at least the reminder that there is at least one friend out there who gets it. And whatever you're going through in this moment, there's nothing to fix. It's just, you know, to honor. If you do want to open it, there might be some strategies to help you honor it. But, you know, that's, yeah. that's up to you. Because um, yeah. ultimately, it's one of the first things I say on the first page. I want to get that out. Like, this is for you and it's up to you. You know, ultimately, you choose. You know, and that's yeah. what seems daunting at the beginning becomes a very, a very beautiful freedom to show up to um you know whenever whenever you're ready to love that whenever you're ready to because plenty of people are going to tell you when when they think that you should be should have moved on or you should have done this or you should have done that but that's actually irrelevant because until you are then it doesn't matter anyway addison what does the future hold like what what is the further impact that you want to have with this purpose that you've now stepped into that's uh that's very of the moment um i my my humorous side wants to respond with there's no way to know um because <laughs> that gets me out of the question um yeah. i think you know there's there's this seed that's been coming up when i've talked recently and and just both like privately and professionally of you know this this sort of inner child showing up and and what what he had hoped for and and how little he cares about my achievements um which is funny to me um, but i was like i thought this is what you wanted and it was like no i just want to love and laugh and i'm like oh well you know just go on tinder then you know i'm kidding but it, um, it's just very different than than what i thought i would be looking at you know and and mm. i have long over professionally proven to myself that anything i put my mind to i can do um and with this beautiful exhaustion I'm feeling after this book came out right now, that that is what I'm honoring right now is is the listening and not feeling like I need to present something. Um, and it's been interesting. Like I, I have found that I only want to do grief one day a week. I do want to do it. I do love to tap back in and be a part of the club. But I'm just another guy in the gym, and I have to look out for myself on the other six days. I'm not a coach. I'm not a doctor. You know, I. I, I, I don't want anyone to feel isolated and I want to show up with, with what I've been through, but I also was an aspiring screenwriter and creator and, you know, fiction writer, a very talented fiction writer in high school because I never imagined anything would ever happen to me where it would be based on a true story. But I, I do have an interest in, in returning back to that, that level of play and, and using seeds of real life in, in these other mediums creatively and, and just um, playing again and, you know, it being sort of surprising if someone were to stumble through Google and find out that I had been through all these things because when they met me, we laughed most of the time. You know, that's, I, I, yeah. I really would like to get, get to that. And I can see that, that a little bit more clearly every day as, as sort of the fog lifts and, and I, you know, honor my own grief um, in a healthy way. Love it. 
one thing that came to me there was something that I was going to ask earlier, but uh, we went on a different tangent. Did you have aspirations? You said you mentioned aspirations. And did you have aspirations for your dancing or, or whatever performance that you were heading towards that, that you had to then make sense of not being able to become a reality? Again, like, and this is where the magic comes in. I, I don't feel like I ever didn't get to see things through. I mean, there's something like a big pause there. And it's funny because a lot of, you know, obviously, like, I, I live in Los Angeles and it's Hollywood and, you know, like all that stuff. A lot of the people who are sort of 10 years older than me right now are, are sort of laughing at me about how worried I was at 26, 27 about being on pause because you know, it, essentially what it did for a storyteller is infuse the most amount of life possible, you know. Um, for me, it, I always wanted to dance until physically it sort of naturally shifted anyways. I, I didn't expect it to be as literal as it was. Um, yeah. But but it, for me, it's just the ability to tell story. And, and so I've sort of weaved in and out of both dance, acting, writing, yeah, like, I guess writing is still writing if it's screenwriting or a book, but you know, like there's always a different way to do that. And even, you know, in, in the stuff I do in nonprofits with events and, and there's just, there's always been sort of a way for me to continue storytelling. So I, I definitely, have, I haven't really grieved that. I think there's just a natural grief though, that happens, especially with someone who's highly athletic or highly artistic, like in a physical way, there's a grief of sort of just the same way sometimes you think about college nights with your friends or high school or you're never going to like play on the street again. Like, you know, it's just, you know, that's, that's, um, that's one of the sort of micro grief processes I assume would have been happening and been a very main focus in my late twenties if it wasn't completely overshadowed by these sort of, you know, movie like grief things that, that happened. Um, so, so that there's a lot of that right now for me too, going back and honoring the things I sort of missed as I sort of became an adult that I know for a lot of people were a main focus, but were sort of pushed to the side for me. And I, I get to go back and honor all my, all my micro grief processes. And again, I'm not saying micro as in they were small and they don't matter, just that you might have to look with a microscope to realize you're grieving something uh, in your life because there's just these rites of passage that shift. You know, having children is a beautiful thing, but like you said, some of my friends are sitting there going, "That means a lack of freedom in other ways." You know, so there's there's these grief processes that you know, grief is for me is the loss of anything meaningful. You know, and, and what was meaningful to you, so that is not always a physical death, and, and most often and beautifully so, it's not. You know, it's it's a stage of life. It's a job. It's a relationship. It's a role. It's these other things. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of I kind of going back and like giving myself those parts of myself that maybe did want to dance a little bit longer or or did want to just keep pitching the TV show I'd written and not be in a physical recovery for two years. Like, you know, like some love because I understand that those parts of me, you know, would have way rather done that. Um, and that's something yeah. I'm just started getting to because survival was too much of a focus for a long time. Yeah. Love it. And what I'm drawn to is the, those moments of micro grief. We, we are constantly grieving those, those little losses. Uh, the first year of grief club could almost be broken down into an hour, a day, a week, depending on the size of the grief, right? Like it's a, I don't know if you've looked at it like this, but year it can be a moment in time. And 
and the same strategies are going to work, whether it's something that's big and needs longer, like a year or more, or whether it needs to be something that you're, you're processing quickly because it's, yeah, micro, not necessarily any less painful, but just not not as impactful in the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, time's a weird thing when it when it comes to that. It's, you know, it's it can be so long and so short at the same time. And, and depending on how you approach or show up to anything, I mean, in a sense, we've spent 10 years together now in this hour because we've gone there and we've dipped back and forth. And, you know, I've seen parts of me in the last hour from, you know, 10 years. And I think it's, it represents grief in a lot of ways that that feeling of, if you ever had that type of conversation where you're, you're sort of time traveling, you know, a lot of the time. And it's this, this sort of, sort of beautiful parent thing where you're letting a child walk, but trying to get back to present, you know, and feel safe there. And, um, yeah, I just, I mean, it's also a testament to you. It's, it's been a beautiful, safe space. And I, I said things I haven't heard before in the last hour. So I'll go back and transcribe this and try to pull something out of it as well. Um, yeah, cool. yeah, it's just been, it's been a testament to this. And, and like I keep saying, like, you know, this is all stuff that, that wasn't happening even a decade ago. Two guys spending, you know, a night like this or for you a day because you're in the future. Um, so you yeah. actually um, but um you know it's it's things have shifted and there's a lot going on in the world but you know the, the more that i have conversations like this the more i realize that that the next people to enter grief club are are going to have a lot more friends and a lot more support and that doesn't have to necessarily be a sad thing um you know i i, I would much rather join looking around going no one has to babysit me or take care of me, but there's other people here, you know, and, and technology in some ways, that's one beautiful thing about technology. It's allowed us to, to feel that. I mean, we're, we're Toronto to Australia right now, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's proof, you know? Yep, absolutely. And uh, you're never alone in, in whatever you're going through with your grief. So yeah, it's a great way to finish. Where do we find the book, Addison? Uh, it is on Amazon Worldwide, First Year of Grief, Grief Club, a gift from a friend who gets it. And um, I'm just my name on socials. You can find it there too, Addison Brazil or Share My Grief Club is the is the Grief Club one, um, mygriefclub.com. Um, yeah, that's that. I, I'm accessible. <laughs> and I, I'm the only Addison Brazil in the world. Uh, Brazil, like <laughs> cool. the country, the way the locals spell it. Um, but yeah, that's that's one thing. I'm definitely the only one. How cool is that? Very unique. Uh, we'll make sure we drop those links in the notes there so people can find it as well. Addison, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing so openly and, and sharing your wisdom and guidance for our audience today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.